Welcome back for our second go at the case report discussions for practical neurology. I'm Martin Turner. I'm a neurologist based in Oxford, and it's great to be back with Ruth, who is uh, a trainee in Hayward Heath, and Sinew, who's a trainee in Oxford as well. So hi to both of you. Hi. Hello. So we've got uh, a lot of cases to choose from, and we've got a couple of crackers. And the first one is uh, the reversible amnesia following opiate overdose, or Chanter syndrome. So, Sinew, take us through the case. Tell us how this one presented. Yeah, thanks very much. So this was a brief but very interesting case by Shihan and colleagues out of St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dublin. And they describe a case of a 30-year-old man who was brought to the emergency department after having been found unresponsive and cyanotic by his mother. This was presumed to be due to a drug overdose. Now, when the paramedics assessed him, he was found to be in respiratory arrest and he was given some naloxone intramuscularly and his breathing resumed. His Glasgow coma scale at that time was documented as 14 out of 15. His pupils were pinpoint, but there was no other focal neurology on examination. Now he did show signs of intergrade amnesia with repeated questioning, even to questions that he had just been given the answer to shortly before. And the last sort of bit of clinical information is that he was disoriented to time and he could not recall the events that brought him to hospital. Yeah, so this is an unusual presentation and I guess we're used to seeing this sort of thing with uh, that shadowy entity of transient global amnesia. Uh, so just, just in, let, let's just talk a little bit about that. Uh, have you seen a case of that, uh, Sinew? Is that something you've seen? What, yes. what are the parallels that you, when you've seen cases like that? I mean, obviously we've got a strong steer here that this was drug induced, but in terms of the, the memory syndrome, what, what are the parallels or differences uh, in broad terms? Yeah, so when I was reading this case, uh, I thought certainly this had to be related to his drug overdose, but this sort of amnestic presentation was quite striking, and it does bear parallels to transient global amnesia, which is this entity whereby someone will present with significant enterograde amnesia, and this classic a description of repetitive questioning. Uh, there's often this sort of index point where in thereafter they uh, develop and they demonstrate this amnesia. Uh, however, in terms of where it might dissociate, uh, transient global amnesia or TGA is often reserved for instances where there aren't any clear etiology and there have been sort of several um, proposed mechanisms in terms of possibly migraine, vascular events, seizure, uh, but generally, from what I understand, it's usually when it's still unclear what's what's driving it forward. That's right. I mean, I, I find it um, the most fascinating condition. In, in my experience, I haven't seen many cases, but I think it's, it's often a slightly older patient. Uh, and there's often this uh, exertional trigger beforehand. And, I, I've, and, and, and also extreme cold. So two cases I remember, uh, one was triggered early morning, starting a motorcycle in the cold. Uh, so a bit of cold and exertion. And then the, uh, the patient had no recollection, despite sort of cycling off to Brighton, meeting his friends for a cup of tea, just kept asking the same questions. And a remarkably sort of good social front in a way, really, because people don't immediately assume there's something terrible wrong with 
people with TGA, they don't sort of come across as obviously in distress. And it, it only becomes apparent when they get their memory back. And another person actually was uh, sailing and dipped their head under the water in the sea in May, which is pretty cold, and uh, and then has no recollection, although they did go on to, I think, win the race. So, uh, um, but, but presumably the cold exposure there triggered that. So it's a very strange entity, isn't it? And we usually tell patients that it won't happen again, and, and I think generally that seems to hold. So that's even more strange. Um, so, but it's good to have things that we, we don't understand. But here we've got a very clear precipitant. And then let's go through the imaging. What did that show? So a CT head was obtained, which was described as unremarkable, and a toxicology screen was done, which was positive for cocaine and opiates. They then went on to describe a little bit more about this um, amnestic syndrome, where he couldn't remember even current events and needed some prompting of information that was given to him, reflecting a short-term memory impairment. They did further imaging three days later in the form of a brain MRI, which showed increased flare signal. So that's fluid attenuated inversion recovery, and also T2 signal, which was focal to the hippocampi in both cerebellar hemispheres, along with associated diffusion-weighted imaging change in those regions. A repeat MRI with contrast five days after that, so looking at eight days down the line from presentation, showed almost full resolution of the T2 and the flare changes in the hippocampi and cerebellum, but there was still some abnormal post-contrast enhancement in those regions. And, and in that improved scan, the patient had, had now improved their uh, memory function, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. They described that over two weeks or so, the patient made progressive and really good recovery of his memory and working with the occupational therapist with a bit of cognitive rehab, and indeed returned to a work a month later with no persisting amnesia, which is sort of quite incredible if you think of his initial presentation. Yeah, now we were told about two drugs here, the, and, and, and cocaine, I suppose, was the initial one that made me think it would maybe sort of uh, vasospastic in some way. But, but uh, the references are actually all pretty consistently relate to uh, opiate drugs, and a couple of reports of fentanyl there. There is one fentanyl and cocaine. Uh, but it does seem to be an opiate-associated effect. Did you find anything else about that in your reading? Yeah, so this was described as a case of Chanter syndrome, which is an acronym that stands for cerebellar hippocampal and basal nuclei transient edema with restricted diffusion. And it feels a little bit like the original authors worked a bit hard to make the acronym work. But, but I guess it's it does. It's a good one, though, isn't it? Yeah, you can't say no to that. It's pretty good. And it was actually first described in 2019 based on a small case series of patients who presented unresponsive after opioid overdose with very similar brain changes on imaging. Uh, they also had evidence of cerebral edema, and some individuals actually passed away or had significant disability. And interestingly, I had a quick look at the original paper by Jasney and colleagues, and I believe it started from this one patient. They observed these findings and they did a retrospective search to look uh, for others within two hospitals. So it, it was pretty fascinating that, you know, even at this sort of day and age where we know lots and lots about neurology, that they could go off and find something and describe something new. And there have been other reports of cases with sort of non-specific amnestic syndromes following opioid toxicity. And I suppose the way I read this is that 
Chanter sits along this sort of spectrum of toxidromes associated with acute exposure to opioids or indeed other drugs, but primarily opioids, including things like hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome um, and some other more specific um, conditions. And so Chanter syndrome sits along that spectrum, but it tends to be a little bit more severe on presentation involving the gray matter and rather uniquely the cerebellum as well as the hippocampi and basal nutrients. Yeah, and I think that, that the, the other thing that I sort of was trying to process with this was that the common theme seems to be hypoxia. So I suppose with the opiates, this is respiratory depression that's driving it. Yet, when we see patients who've had prolonged hypoxia in the, in the context of a cardiac event, for example, we get a lot more basal ganglia changes, don't we? We don't see these sorts of changes which then shifts you back to thinking it, it's something more uh, uh, drug-specific, really, or, or situational. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I guess it has to be the hypoxia that's, that's the common theme, um, and this is just a very sensitive structure. The cerebellum, we know the Purkinje cells have very high metabolic demands, uh, although, again, not a structure that we see particularly... Uh, sensitive in a hypoxic brain injury post-arrest, uh, uh, to, to my experience. So there's definitely some some differences there. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I did find another condition described as heroin-associated spongiform leukoencephalopathy hassle, which is another sort of toxidrome associated with it inhaling. Yes, we've had a case patients. of that, actually. Yeah, we're in, uh, in Oxford, <laughs> um, uh, we presented at Grand Round. Yeah, yeah, carry on. Yeah, it's a term chasing the dragon for those of you who don't know the colloquial term to in, in terms of inhaling heroin. Um, and it's, it also involves the cerebellum and some of the cerebrum, but uh, in contrast to Chanter, it involves more the white matter regions. So it does seem that there are some sort of specificities to Chanter and also this involvement of opiates. Um, but yes, very, yeah. very, very interesting. I had a look uh, just to see if I could find, uh, if anyone had managed to get someone in the scanner with more traditional TGA, and, and there are some case reports. And the one I spotted, um, the interesting thing was a much more focal, what they called almost punctate signal change within a, a particular so-called CA1 region of the, uh, the hippocampus, which um, is, uh, again, rather sort of different. This is a very in your Chanter case, this is a very symmetrical, uh, rather uniform uh, uptake and restricted diffusion, uh, whereas uh, obviously only a single case, but in a, in a TGA case was much more uh, focal and uh, and rather unilateral. So, yeah, I think I like a lot of heterogeneity here, um, but uh, very interesting. Any other points you wanted to make? I think... I would say from a clinical perspective, or rather the clinical presentation, it really is the hippocampi involvement, which is driving uh, the presentation forward. Uh, rather interestingly, the, the chanter aspect and the cerebellum is, is primarily uh, the radiological findings, as in no case reports I could find do they really focus on cerebellum involvement. And I think that fits quite nicely with the clinical presentation of this sort of episodic memory type um, deficit that we also see in TGA and, and related things like transient epileptic amnesia, which is often temporal lobe and localizing to the hippocampi. Uh, and of course, from a cognitive perspective, this sort of syndrome of this amnestic episodic presentation is, is quite famous, isn't it, with certain key features uh, or rather key people 
like HM, which is um, known for his episodic memory amnestic syndrome following bilateral hippocampal uh, surgery to treat his temporal lobe epilepsy. So yeah, very, very interesting from a cognitive perspective as well as a radiological. Absolutely. One. Yes. Yes. Ruth, have you seen uh, a, a case like this or any sort of particular uh, drug-induced brain neurological syndromes? Um, not so much, really. I've had a few uh, phone calls about um, transient global amnesia cases, but um, actually not seen those patients myself, but I'm quite early on in training. When I read this, I thought it was really interesting too. And I, I think the kind of things you discussed about, you know, the possible mechanism was quite interesting. You know, why were those particular brain regions so vulnerable, the hippocampus and the cerebellum? Um, and I found a, an interesting paper that suggested that maybe these regions have a higher density of opioid receptors, which might also contribute to why the pathology kind of hits those areas as well as the hypoxic element. That's really interesting. I think that's very, uh, very plausible and, uh, yeah, it does give us much more of a, of a, of a sense of uh, mechanism there. OK, well, let's move on to the second case. So, Ruth, uh, you've chosen the Conus medullaris syndrome as a presenting feature of MOLG-associated disease. So tell us how this case evolved. Thanks. This is a case um, from uh, Queen's Hospital Department of Neurology in Romford. Um, and it's a case of a 24-year-old female who presented with a two-day history of urinary retention and a four-day history of paresthesia in her legs. She also described that her legs felt weak, um, although she had remained independently mobile. Um, and when she was questioned further, she had had no fever, no weight loss, no other constitutional symptoms um, and no visual symptoms either. So no symptoms of optic neuritis or diplopia. So I think on, the, on that sort of basic history, we, which is sort of evolving over a few days, we're already put well away from a sort of simple vascular event, aren't we? We're much more into the inflammatory zone. And uh, yeah, I think at that stage, we haven't got clear localization in the cord. Uh, so tell us what the what the examination findings were. So we're not told that much about the examination, but the general physical examination was normal. And the neurological examination showed that there was reduced sensation in the limbs distally to the level of the mid shins. Um, and the knee jerk reflexes were also brisk. But we're not really told much else. So from that pattern, it almost sounded like more of a stocking distribution of sensory loss, but with some upper motor neuron signs with the brisk knee jerks. Yeah, and I recall actually that the, the in the textbooks, there's a sort of classical presentation actually of conus lesions with this rather strange sort of sock distribution sensory loss. Um, so I think that is quite typical. And then I guess the it would be unusual to develop that peripherally uh, over so, such a short period. And you've got the, the big clue of the brisk reflexes, which is definitely putting it into the cord. But it would be easy, I guess, to uh, to assume uh, and maybe go higher initially. So, uh, but and you've got the the urinary retention as well. So, yeah, I think it puts it as a pretty typical conus type of syndrome at this stage. And they obviously went to great lengths to to ask this patient about any previous uh, suggestion of inflammatory episodes and, and really nothing to report. Is that is that right? Yes, yeah, so we're told that um, in terms of her past medical history, she had an iron deficiency anemia 
and she'd previously had a breast fibroadenoma excised two years before, um, but there was nothing else mentioned in terms of past medical history or past neurological events. She also hadn't had any recent foreign travel, she didn't have any pets, and she had no family history of neurological problems either. In terms of medications, she wasn't taking anything regularly and she still lived with her parents and was previously fully independent. So there's nothing kind of from her occupational or social history that suggests anything else going on either. Yeah, and it's important with these sorts of cases to get a sense of how they would have evolved in in real time. And, and with someone presenting like this with urinary retention and the, the history's quite short, you've got some central signs... I would imagine that they got straight on really with the uh, the imaging and that would have happened fairly rapidly and quite rightly so in case there was a, a structural cause. So what, um, what do they see on the scan? So they did an MRI scan of the brain, which they describe as being normal. And then they did some imaging of the whole spine. So we're shown in the paper some T2 weighted imaging, um, sagittal and axial images. And these show that there's high signal in the central aspects of the conus at the vertebral level of T11 to T12. And they describe the cord as being slightly expanded at this level. But they didn't see any other spinal cord lesions. Um, and I think initially it was unclear from the appearances as to whether this was inflammatory or could have represented something else like a low-grade glioma. Yeah, and that's a common conversation, isn't it? And, and, and I think what I noticed, and I don't think I could find it in the case report that I don't think that we were told whether gadolinium was given uh, and I assume that the pictures we're looking at probably are not gadolinium enhanced but I'm not definite about that and of course that would would be important I think in exploring the differential which uh, might also include uh, if you were thinking about a, a malignancy might also include lymphoma which does have relevance actually then to the treatment if one wants to treat empirically but we might come back to that. So looking at their list of differential diagnosis I guess on that list there the scan would have excluded uh, well we didn't have a history of trauma and it doesn't look like a disc uh, we can't see any evidence at this stage of dural arterial venous fistula and my experience with those is they often fluctuate quite a quite a lot that's the clue there really they sometimes uh, seem to get better for a few days and then get worse but otherwise it's still a bit open really thinking about inflammation and uh, infection and possibly tumour. So they went on to do a lumbar puncture and what did that show? Yeah, so the CSF showed a lymphocytic pleocytosis. So they found 22 white cells, uh, all of which were lymphocytes. The glucose and protein were actually normal. Um, the viral PCR was negative and they also sent off oligoclonal bands which came back as negative as well. Yeah. So I think at that stage, I mean we'll come on to the uh, the key antibody test, but at this stage, one is going to have to make a call, really, about whether you, you want to treat uh, with steroids. What are the risks of that? And, and I suppose the, the, the risks are, are relatively low. Uh, there are side effects of steroids, but, but they are pretty unusual. And there's obviously a lot to gain here by reversing any uh, bladder involvement. I suppose there is a concern, if, the, if it's an unusual tumour, that... You, you might reverse that and then make it very difficult to get a tissue diagnosis. It seems to be uh, that the, the history is a little bit short, really, to make that likely. As I say, we, we didn't, don't really have the full set of imaging to, to know what that discussion was. But I think, you know, on balance, it, it seems a very reasonable uh, 
uh, approach at this stage to give a trial of steroids, having ruled out as many active things as you can. What, what was your feeling? Yeah, I thought this was reasonable too. I mean, the viral PCR was negative and there wasn't any indication that it was infective. So, And we know that treating these conditions rapidly with steroids is really important in terms of recovery. So I think that was a really reasonable thing to do and actually gave them a bit of a clue as to what it might be. Yeah, so they went on to uh, to do some antibody tests and just tell us what they showed. So they tested for MOG antibodies, which were positive in the serum, but the serum Acroporin 4 antibodies were negative. They don't mention whether or not they sent them in the CSF No, but it's a, it's a good little bit of discussion, isn't there, that they were saying that um, the, the yield in the CSF is incomplete anyway. And in fact, they they make the point, really, that there's no additional value of testing the CSF as the sensitivity is higher in the serum, which I think is a useful practice point. So uh, we've got used to it, certainly um, it's a little bit biased in Oxford because we're very tuned into these sorts of uh, syndromes um, because we've had a particular interest in our neuroimmunology department. But I think for some time now, there's been a tendency to generally send these two antibodies off in in partnership when there's been a concern about uh, any sort of inflammatory, particularly optic uh, neuritis type syndromes. Uh, so... Tell us um, where we are with sort of understanding how these are all a little bit different from typical MS and then through to NMO and, and the, the, the MOG syndromes, which I think are now called MOGAD, aren't they? Sort of MOG-associated disease. Yes, yeah, so I found the editorial that accompanies this issue really helpful in terms of an overview of how to think about NMO spectrum disorder versus uh MOG-associated antibody disease. And they've got a really nice Venn diagram there where they kind of illustrate the various overlaps between the uh, different conditions. But essentially, my understanding was that initially, you know, cases like this would have been um, attributed to being atypical MS, um, multiple sclerosis. And we now know that that um, MS is much more likely to produce uh, short segment lesions. And this specific association between uh, long segment cord lesions and optic neuritis was really classified as a distinct clinical syndrome, which was then later found to often be associated with acroporin 4 antibodies. And then I think a number of cases of NMO spectrum disorder were then that were negative for acroporin 4 antibodies were then found to, to be MOG positive. And so the picture became even more complicated. Um, and now we know that MOG antibodies themselves are associated with quite a wide range of clinical presentations. So not just um, NMO spectrum disorder type presentations, but also sort of isolated, longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, which often has sort of a preference for affecting the lower cord and the, and the conus, but also isolated optic neuritis and even this um, a focal kind of cortical encephalitis type syndrome as well. And we also know that MOG antibodies are associated with uh, about half of ADEM cases in children as well. That's right. Yes, it's not, not, a, not a group that, that we see a lot of, but uh, it's certainly really a very important cause for the uh, paediatric neurologist to think about those syndromes. And they can be a little bit more challenging, as, as many things are, when they affect they're bad enough to affect children. So um, what do we know? That there's quite an important practice point, isn't there, around the sort of chances of these things being monophasic and, and, and settling really with, with one course of treatment um, versus needing rather aggressive and usually long-term treatment. Just talk to us about that, please. 
Yes, yeah, so in the MOG positive cases, um, they've got a much lower risk of relapse than cases that are associated with Acroporin-4 antibodies. So when I was reading around this, um, I think the statistics were that around half of MOG cases would relapse, um, but that was actually higher for the Acroporin-4 cases. And that affects decisions for further treatment. So I th- think with the MOG cases, um, they're more likely to be treated with a, an oral corticosteroid taper for around six months um, and not require any long-term immunosuppression. And a sort of watch and wait approach is, is used. Whereas with the Acroporin-4 cases, after one attack, um, these patients are generally put on um, long-term immunosuppression. Yeah. And there's some, some really interesting uh, work coming out now, isn't there, on the sort of triggering of these conditions. I mean, uh, I guess most in the headlines is the complexity of MS and, and there's there's obviously a big resurgence in the interest in how EBV might be operating in, in that process, certainly not as a single event, but as a, as a part of a multi-hit process. And I guess it's a little early days really to know in the NMO and, and MOG diseases whether there might be some molecular mimicry, some sort of trigger due to infection uh but uh yeah anything that anyone's read about uh indicating why these diseases are happening uh, uh, even if perhaps there's uh, some early genetic susceptibilities anyone read anything about that well, i don't know whether it gives a clue to the kind of pathogenesis but i was interested to read that the um so the mog antigen is only expressed within the cns whereas aquaporin 4 is expressed in the kidney as well it's thought that the MOG antibodies are synthesised in the periphery. So somehow, whether MOG's escaping from the CNS into the, you know, leaking into the bloodstream and simulating a response there, or or whether there is some molecular mimicry, I was quite interested in how the antibody would form in the periphery when the antigen is only located in the Yeah, that's CNS. a really interesting point. Uh, my neuroimmunology laboratory colleagues tell me there's really a very, very increased interest and excitement about understanding uh, the, the, the sort of peripheral and central nervous system immune compartments really in relation to neurological disorders. I think they, they were regarded really as quite separate and didn't speak to each other and, and, and weren't uh, generally involved uh, jointly. But uh, I think that, that views are changing on that, which is uh, very, very interesting. I, I think there's also a lot of interest around sort of transient uh, breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, and also, as you say, these sort of immune reservoirs, subpeer layer, um, especially in MS, there's been a lot recently in terms of B-cell reservoirs as well. So, yeah, I think it's a really expansive field. And we ought to just mention at the end of this case, they do just uh, slip in a, an eponymous syndrome, which always catches my eye, the Ellsberg syndrome. So just uh, just decode that for us, um, Ruth. So, yes, they did just drop this in at the end. Um so my understanding is that Ellsberg syndrome is a neuroinflammatory disease um, and I believe it causes lumbosacral radiculitis and can also involve myelitis. And I think it's related to recent herpes virus infection. Um, and in some reports, it's thought to account for, I was quite surprised, 5 to 10% of corda equina syndrome and myelitis, which seemed like quite a significant chunk of cases for something that I hadn't come across before. Yeah, I, I had a little read as well. I, I think undoubtedly herpes is the group that has attached itself to this name. And I mean, like many of these things, they, uh, for example, NMO used to be uh, Devic disease. You know, these terms get used to describe really a clinical entity. 
and then in recent years they've broken down much more by the the molecular biology. I think probably the Ellsberg syndrome is now catching up really with the Malk era, such that many of those cases or some of those cases at least would have would have had different causes. But they, they obviously tested here for for herpes, and that's definitely a consideration with this kind of presentation. But um, it, it's probably a, a good example really where we'll we'll increasingly uh, move away from sort of eponymous syndromes into a much more molecular taxonomy of, uh, of neurology and other disorders. Sidney, any other comments you wanted to make? I think the two really big learning points for me in this case was the fact that, you know, serum, MOG and acroporin 4 testing is sufficient instead of sending off CSF. I, I think I've always known that, but I'd never quite understood why until I read this case report. So that was really useful. And as well as that, this whole expanding entity of MOG disease in its own right, because previously I used to combine MOG and acroporin 4 together under the NMO spectrum disorder, but understanding that it is its separate entity and there's overlap, but it can be quite different was was quite uh, illuminating yeah, and, for me. And people should check out that, uh, that editorial uh, from Dr. Huda and uh, Professor Pallas based here in Oxford. So, well, look, uh, two great cases. Uh, we had a whole load to choose from, and uh, we could have uh, just ploughed on with uh, with all the others. So, people should uh, read through those other cases. And um, thanks so much for uh, for going through them in in such detail, and uh, for the insights that I've learnt as always from you. Thanks. I would just add one more thing that these case reports especially the Chanter syndrome one, has excellent images. So I encourage our listeners to go and look up those images uh, to really solidify these uh, yeah, cases. Great. Okay, well, if they'll have us back, then uh, we'll be uh, here again next time to do another <laughs> couple of cases. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, good to see you both again. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks very much. Thank you.